We've got a couple of wagging work stories sent through, but I do think it was our fault because I, neither of us, you know, pointed out that of course we're not going to name and shame and throw you, our wonderful listeners, under the bus. We've both got favourites. Do you want to say your favourite one first? Yeah. Um, uh, one person writes, I, I fake fainted when I was hungover. Uh, I had a four-hour nap in the back room and I got paid for it. That's lovely. Yeah, my favourite one, though, was uh, it's simple and it just said, pretty sure I have about nine dead grandmas. <laughs> anyway, should we crack in with the show? Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Emil. And I'm Imogen, and this is What's Worth Talking About. The banking sector's going under the Commerce Commission's microscope. What does that even mean, and why does it matter? Football finds itself embroiled in yet another racism scandal. So what on earth is wrong with the world's most popular sport? We're taking a look at what happens to property when you're in a thruple, but then you break up. Plus, the greatest, if not truest, indicator of the cost of living crisis crunch across the ditch. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Big news that should end up affecting pretty much every single New Zealander. The government has directed the Commerce Commission to carry out an investigation into bank Profits. The main concern, banks are making too much money off their customers here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Sam Stubbs is the Managing Director of Simplicity and he's with us now to talk all about this. Kia ora, Sam. Kia ora. Sam, tell us about the point of this inquiry, this investigation. What is wrong with our banking sector? Well, look, I think we need to put this in context. So the banking sector is the most profitable sector in New Zealand. It made $10 billion of pre-tax profit. So to put that into perspective, that's over $300 a second, right? <laughs> every second of every day. And it's over a million dollars an hour. So the, the sector is, is extremely profitable, more profitable than the electricity sector, the supermarkets and the construction companies all put together. And so the issue is, one, is the level of that profitability, but also um, what does that mean for the average New Zealander? Because if you took $10 billion worth of profits divided by the number of New Zealanders, that's an average of $2,000 each, right? And that's not revenue, by the way, that's profit. So the, the sheer magnitude of it is cause for concern, but also, and a primary concern to people like me is that how is it that the New Zealand branches of these Australian banks, so the big four banks in New Zealand, how is it that they're making more money from the average New Zealander than the average Australian, which they are? So that's of concern. And then also, you know, New Zealand is the only country in the OECD where the foremost profitable companies are banks. That's highly unusual. You talk about the magnitude of the profits, and that, that's kind of that's the key question, isn't it, Sam? Because we, we do want banks to make a profit. We want banks to have money because otherwise we wouldn't be able to withdraw money. It's the level of profit. Exactly right. Well, I mean, we want really strong banks in New Zealand, right? But there's a difference between being really strong, which they could be, and being you know the 100-pound gorillas, which they are in the market, and basically crowding out, it seems, it's sort of competition. This is stage one, though, right? Because the Commerce Commission will spend quite a bit of time looking at this in some depth and the best qualified people to do it. Then they'll come up with a series of recommendations, and then it will be up to the politicians 
in the hot seat at the time to do something about it, right? Do these uh, profits just simply boil down to banks that are here in New Zealand are charging customers way more than they are charging Aussie customers over there, or is there something else here? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. Look, I think it's really simple. Banking is super simple, right? You take in deposits, you take that money and you lend it to somebody else and you take a profit in the middle, right? It's called the net interest margin, if you want to use the fancy term. So in New Zealand, that net interest margin is very high. It's over 2% or has been over 2% in the latest reporting cycle of the banks. That means that they take a dollar in, they add two cents on and they lend it out at a dollar two. Now that doesn't sound very much, but when you're lending hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, that ends up to being a huge amount of money. So the problem is a combination of not paying enough in term deposits or charging too much for lending. And your contention is that in a successful capitalist society, other banks would come in, other competition would come in and would force the banks that are here to, to become more competitive with one another. Well, you know, we love capitalism, right? As, as Churchill said, it's the worst form of economic organisation except for all the others, right? So for a proper capitalist economy to work, you've got to have efficient competition. So the Commerce Commission ha- has to come in and say, why isn't there proper competition? Why aren't those banks competing with each other more aggressively and driving down borrowing rates and driving up term deposit rates? Or why can't other people get access into the market? And you know, a very obvious question here to ask is, why is New Zealand one of the very, very few countries in the developed world now that doesn't have open banking? This is a, 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 a very commonly understood. It, it, it opens the door for competition when it comes in because it levels the playing field. And the banks have been hinting at getting this going and you know, saying, you know, we want to get this going. In my personal opinion, I think that's probably the lack of open banking is probably costing New Zealanders about a billion dollars a year in excess profits. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch this unfold over the coming months, uh, weeks and months rather. Sam Stubbs, thanks very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Important to point out that the New Zealand Banking Association has responded to all of this on behalf of all the banks. Uh, It says the industry looks forward to taking part and it believes the Commerce Commission inquiry will ease concerns around competition and innovation because, according to the Banking Association, we already do have a competitive banking sector here. It also says banks are among New Zealand's biggest businesses and therefore their profits naturally do look big. Now, we are taking a look at the latest indicator of the cost of living Hitting Australia hard, it's a doozy, and we'll tell you all about that a bit later. But for now, we want to know if there's something specific you've given up because of the cost of living. I'm thinking coffees, gym membership, appointment. If it's me, it's not buying as many puzzles online. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> it's probably something I didn't really want to share. Uh, get in touch on Insta, search for Newsable NZ, or flick us an email, newsable@staff.co.nz. We're going to talk about football now because yesterday the New Zealand men's football team's friendly match against Qatar was abandoned because New Zealand refused to take the field for the second half. They did this because centre-back Michael Boxall was allegedly racially abused by an opposing player. Boxall is of Samoan descent. Now, we don't know what was allegedly said. The on-pitch mics didn't pick it up. But New Zealand football has said it was a significant racial slur that has no place in the game. And it's referred the incident to FIFA's anti-racism task force. But we want to talk about this because... 
we're football fans here on Newsable, and Emil in particular has some pretty strong feelings on the wider issue here. Um, so w- what did you make of all this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel strongly about this because I really love football. Um, mm. I guess the, the place to start is that football is kind of a unique sport in the sense. It's it's much more popular and more widely played at a high level than, than any other. Uh, you know, the golf between football and everything else is pretty galactic. And that means that you quite often have different countries with different cultures and different sensibilities meeting in these uh, heated adversarial situations. And that can lead to uh, breakdowns of communication. You know, what is considered racist in the UK might not necessarily be considered racist uh, in another country in, in the world. And I sympathise with that. But from my point of view as a football watcher, uh, since I was very young, I think there has long been a culture of tolerance towards racism and other forms of bigotry uh, among the football administrators, you know, and, and that has kind of fostered the situation that we see today. Like, it, it's pretty common to have crowds uh, doing monkey chants at football matches at black players and throwing bananas at them. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah, this, this happened in Spain just a few weeks ago to a player called Vinicius, mm. who's, like, one of the most famous and, and best players in the world. He's beautiful to, to watch. Mm. He's an amazing player to watch. Um, at, a, at a game recently, um, fans were chanting, die, Vinicius, at him, and he, he broke down and he cried. Wow. You know, and, and like, that's that, that, that's. Spain, um, this happens a lot in Italy, it happens a lot in Russia, but it happens everywhere. Like in the mm. UK, you and I support Arsenal. Um, uh, Arsenal players have been victims of racist mm. abuse. Arsenal fans have been proponents of mm. racist abuse. And it's not just crowds here either. Like players have done this too. Uh, the Chelsea captain, John Terry, called an opposing player an effing black sea on one wow. occasion a few years ago. And the punishment that he got, he got a £200,000 fine, which is like two weeks' wages, and mm. a, a four-match four ban. Exactly, yeah. It's just, it's it's wild. And in my opinion, as I said before, this environment stems from a lack of action from the sports administrators. They are not being strong enough on this. And, and that has emboldened people, whether players or fans, to do what, what they are doing. Mm. And I, I actually think... We don't know what happened in this situation with no, the Qatari no. player. I mean, we should be clear about that, and there is a process to be gone through. But I think what the New Zealand football team has done here is exactly the right thing to do. I think teams have to draw a line in the sand and say, if we're hearing racist abuse, whether it's from fans or from opposing players, we are going to walk off. You're not going to see the game. That's the strongest message I think that teams can send. And, and administrators need to stand up. You know, they need to really... They need to hand down some serious, serious punishments for players if they're found guilty of this. And if fans are doing it, I, I think they need to either shut down stadiums, issue stadium bans, or or dock points from teams. I think that, that you know, really ratcheting things up a level is the only way to deal with this because it's such a scourge on the game, on, on such a beautiful game, and, and uh, something that could potentially be such a positive, unifying force. That's my two cents on this. We're going to talk about what happens to property if a thruple breaks up in just a tick. But if you are enjoying what you're hearing, chuck us a like and follow on your favourite podcast platform. It'll help other people find us. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. 
So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read from Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court of New Zealand. It's very official, isn't it? Very official. Yeah, it, uh, it has kind of a gravitas to it, you know? It's like the, the mm. highest court in the land. You're not messing around. Yeah it, yeah. it makes judgments that stand the test of time on the most complex and impactful legal questions in society. And yesterday, it took on one of the most testing and noble questions of our time. What happens to shared property when a thruple breaks up? It's very 2023, isn't it? But I mean... It's a good question. I'm not saying that thruples have only been around since 2023, but it's a great question. And uh, it's great that in 2023, we are finally answering it. Joining us now to explain a bit more is Juliet Moses, a partner at TGT Legal. Kia ora, Juliet. Hi. Are you able to give us a bit of background here? What's the story behind this case that the Supreme Court was looking at? So the, the story is, as you say, it's really, it's about what the Supreme Court called a triangular polyamorous relationship, which to me makes me think uh-huh. of Pythagoras, but uh, anyway, that's what they called it. Um, it. It started off with a couple, Brett and Lilac, got married in 1993. Then Fiona came along, she met them in about 99 or 2000, and they formed this polyamorous relationship in about 02. They were together for about 15 years and actually at the very start of the polyamorous relationship, Fiona bought a property. She paid the deposit for it. It was registered in her name and they all lived together in that property for the 15 or so years. So the question when the relationship ended was who sort of gets a claim on that property. Julian, it might seem self-evident here, but like, how does a three-person relationship differ from a two-person relationship when it comes to something like division of, of property when something breaks up? The legislation, the Property Relationships Act, is premised on the basis of mm. couples. So the Supreme Court was trying to figure out, okay, can this apply to a three-way relationship? And uh, that was that was the only question that they were asked to determine was, does the Act actually have jurisdiction in relation to a relationship of this sort? So the Supreme Court, you said, it, it didn't actually issue a decision on who gets what. So what did it actually say and where do things go from here? Under the Act, a de facto relationship is, so bear in mind that there was a married couple mm. pair, but then there was also um, uh-huh. Fiona who, you know, wasn't married to either of them because that would be sick of me. Um, so a de facto relationship is defined as two persons living together as a couple, right? So that's pretty clear. So what the majority of the Supreme Court said was actually you can divide this polyamorous relationship into three separate couples for the purpose of this act. So it sort of broke it down into constituent parts, if you like, the minority, the, the two dissenting judges, said, no, we think that's artificial. You're sort of trying to shoehorn a polyamorous relationship into a construct and a piece of legislation that it wasn't actually intended for. And actually, this is really for Parliament to legislate on. I guess, in a sense, this is kind of how the law works, right? There are, there are changes in society, there are changes in, in, in societal and cultural norms, and the law has to be flexible to keep up with them or at least be open-minded to the possibility of changing to keep up with those norms. That's how it works. It works sort of both ways because I think 
the law has to keep up with society, mm. but the law also mm. shapes society to a degree, right? So it's kind of a bit chicken and egg. What a day to be a Supreme Court justice, eh? Goodness me. Juliet Moses, really interesting stuff. Uh, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, I what, think Chris, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Okay, Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts jaw-dropping data out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics this month. I love it when you start stories with that sentence, Imogen. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite bureau across the ditch. Uh, The sale of pies has reached a five-year low in Australia. Pie sales have dropped by 40%. A five-year low? Five-year low. Well, that seems strange. I know. I would have thought in a cost-of-living crisis, pies would be... uh, a, sta- a staple? I don't know. What yeah. Do well, I mean, the, the the figures, they are skewed a little because uh, peak pie sales in Aussie were around mid-2020, so mid-pandemic, really, right. you know, and we all needed a bit of comfort. But since then, boom, back down, but then, of course, lower than pre-pandemic. Now, of course, according to Aussie media, the cost has risen. So I see. So pies are pies. Pies are a luxury pies. that has um, that has borne borne a brunt of the cost of living crisis. Pies are Australia's latest cost of living casualty. I believe is what we can read from all of this. I love that um, this suggests that Australia collects quite detailed pie data. <laughs> they're, they're monitoring sales of pies closely enough to give us a percentage on the drop in sales. But I emailed Statistics New Zealand asking if we keep similar pie charts. <laughs> of course. I've been waiting all episode to say that. <laughs> uh, we do not. I've had a response. Uh, we do not have data on pie prices or retail figures. The number of pies traded is almost impossible to collect because most pies are not sold with a barcode. However, Food Standards New Zealand in 2017, mind, estimated about 15 meat pies are consumed per person per year. That's about 66 million pies. (laughs) (laughs) That's more pies than sheep. All right, get in touch uh, with us and tell us what thing, if any, you have given up or stopped buying because of the cost of living crisis. This is something that we can all bond over, I think. Mm. Uh, but for now, that's probably us for today, isn't it? I think so. I'm Imogen Wells. And I'm Emil Donovan. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you tomorrow. Go out and support your local bakery, just in case. If you like this podcast please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz support.